Hannah, I'm sorry, I got you out of order there. And, uh, but I believe the Lord was okay with that. And uh, I'll tell you what, one thing I am absolutely sure of this morning, that we are worshiping, being pra- bringing praise and honor to God. We truly are. We, God is being honored in this house. And uh, the psalmist said, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord to worship. And it is indeed a blessing to be here this morning. It, it truly is. And uh, I want to thank the House of Hope for being here this morning, worshiping with us. Let me just say very quickly, if you're not aware of it, and I know these things are in the bulletin, but sometimes we just overlook them. Uh, David and Don Kalenbrink, their uh, son, Justin, and daughter-in-law, Brooke, uh, Thursday they had this much-anticipated day in their life, Thursday, June 17th. Um, their, uh, David and Don's granddaughter, <laughs> Brooke and Justin's firstborn child, Gloria May Kalenbrink, was born, and and uh, she weighed in at thirteen ounces, twenty and a, thirteen ounces, and was twenty and a quarter inches long. And obviously, keep them in your prayers. It's good to uh, it's good to have our kids back from Frontier Camp, and uh, I know they had a good week. And uh, what a blessing for that! It's Father's Day, and uh, if you were fortunate to have a father, a godly father in your life, and you know what the blessing of that is. The reality is, if you weren't, we have a father in who, heaven, who is in heaven who has blessed us in ways that are, I don't know that while we're alive, we fully can grasp the blessings of our father in heaven. And I also want to say the Warwicks, they have a whole bunch of fresh vegetables back there in the foyer, and if you like fresh vegetables, uh, get, they've just bountifully brought them for us to share in and so there's some fresh vegetables there enough we got that covered uh open your bibles to the 53rd chapter of isaiah 53rd chapter of isaiah uh while you're going there i did notice we had a couple of birthdays patsy vesey's birthday melinda jenkins they had their birthday just in this last week and they're both i believe 39 years old they've just almost born in the same and then uh let's see yeah Jordan and Madison Janus, they had their anniversary, but Jordan, you must not be doing very good because you're here and she isn't. So, uh, but no, that's good. And so Isaiah 53, let me just begin by saying this. Um, there are places in the scripture that I look to weekly that if I were to say to you that you ought to read them weekly, maybe daily. Uh, this is one of them, that 53rd chapter of Isaiah, 1 Corinthians 13, that great a uh, passage in Corinthians that talks about love. Uh, Romans chapter 8, what a great passage. It begins Romans 8 and 1, therefore now there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Great chapter. Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 13, Isaiah 53, the first two chapters of Ephesians. And then you ought to be in the Gospels every day, but this is one of those places in Scripture where uh, if you read it and learn it, study it, desire it, um, it's, it has that transform, all scripture has that transformative power. Uh, there are places in scripture though, when I look at them, something happens. Every word of God is inspired by God in second Timothy three sixteen, and it's profitable for rebuke and reproof and training and all those things in relationship to that. There are places in scripture where you can, uh, the scripture is so perfect. It literally is so perfect. And it covers from Genesis to Revelation so many things. 
And so the reason I said those passages, and here's one of them, Isaiah 53, if you'll just take not just each verse, but each almost word, punctuation mark, just the very formation of this prophetic word in Isaiah, you'll find the doctrine of God's sovereignty, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, all those big religious words. You'll, you'll find the truth of God being love, God is spirit, the rich mercy of God. Throughout the entire Bible, Genesis through Revelation, the doctrines and the theology that exist in the Holy Writ in Scripture, you can, you can find them here in this 53rd chapter. You can go back to the garden. You can go back to uh, Adam and Eve's fall. You could go back to the judgment that God incurred on men because of their fall. It's right here. The connectivity to that, the spirituality of that, God's response to that, his predetermined plan, all of those things. This is one of those places. And so I I just have to begin with that. So let's read this together. The 53rd chapter of Isaiah. This is where my message will come this morning. Now, I do want you to consider, and you might want to go back in the If you continue your study, I hope you have a daily study, but you'll see the connectivity or the emphasis that Paul from the scripture that Paul just read and Leviticus 5 having to do with the guilt offering, you'll see it here and it resonates as well. So uh, chapter 53, beginning of verse one, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's this almost hypothetical question. It's a challenge. It's really resonating, this prophetic word. Who's believed our message? The prophet already knows. But he asks that question. Who's believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 2, for he, and this is a prophetic message, 600 years before the birth of the Savior, 600 years before the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, the virgin birth, Isaiah would write this prophetic word about who Jesus would be, who that Savior would be, who the guilt offering would be, what he would look like, the dynamics of his life and his ministry. And so this is speaking of the Lord Savior. This is speaking of the sacrifice of God, the Lamb of God. This is speaking of Jesus Christ and him crucified. These are descriptive words of the coming Messiah 600 years before he would be here. Verse 2, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem them. First thing, number one, I don't know what you think of the Lord Savior Jesus Christ. I don't know what you think of the Son of God. I don't know what you think of the Lion of the tribe of Judah. There are over 300 titles for Jesus, Genesis through Revelation, over 300 of them. So you could just, the Alpha and the Omega, the bright morning star, uh, you could go to Isaiah 9, Eternal Father, uh, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, all, whatever, all the titles. And I don't know how 
deeply you understand your relationship with Christ based upon who he was and who he is and who will always be. But this prophet right here does something. He asked the question, who's believed our message? Who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord would be the actual arm of the Lord, and the arm of the Lord would be, subsequently, Jesus himself. The two are connected. The arm of the Lord is Jesus. The arm of the Lord is the incarnate reality of God's arm in the life of Jesus Christ, his son. And so, who's believed that message? Who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And if you're not sure... He gives you a description of him. And it's important that you and I understand this. Jesus teaches a parable in the 13th chapter of Matthew. And it's the parable of the seed. And he said, a guy's walking across down the road and some seed falls beside the road. And some in some thorny places and some in good soil. And the first, he teaches it. He says that seed is the word of God. And so he says in telling and explaining the parable that there are those who receive the word of God with joy, but a little trouble comes along. Just a little trouble comes along and Satan snatches that away. Let me tell you about the message and the revelation of the arm of the Lord that you better understand. He was like a root out of parched ground. I don't know if you've ever seen, you can go right out there in the parking lot and you see the cracks and you'll see it in asphalt or concrete and there'll be just a little piece of vegetation trying to grow. Uh, You just wonder, well, there's no really good soil there, but the vegetation is trying to grow. There's no, there's no future for that vegetation. There really isn't. I mean, ultimately, even though there's just, there was enough soil there for some of that vegetation to grow it's not going to thrive and and it's just not now again i don't know how you think of our lord and our savior jesus christ my personal belief is that he has been uh he's been dumbed down in a lot of ways that he's we've made him he who is uncommon we've made him common that we've we don't, I don't believe in many ways, fully understand his majesty. But if you go to the ninth chapter of the book of Job, and Job is suffering, he's lost everything. And his friends have come to him and then accused him of just sin. And even his wife would say, you need to curse God and die. And, and, and he's suffering and in his own weakness and pain and disease now and the loss of his wealth and his children. He said in chapter nine, he said, I'm just a man. I can't take God to court. I can't do it. I need someone who can, is a mediator, but what he he was, I need someone who can touch God and touch me and that I would not be afraid in my bones. What does this have to do with uh, the word of God being planted and, and, and you receiving that and maybe a little trouble coming your way. Here's something you better understand about the Lord and God's sovereignty and his love for you. And Isaiah starts it perfectly here. I have no idea what you think of yourself. It's one thing to question you and I. What, what, do, we, what do we think of God? 
as an important as that question is, maybe the more important one is, what do you think of you? And there's a lot of psychology with that. But the entire Bible is the story of God and his son and his will uh, for you and I. It's the story of God and his son and humanity, his creation. And it's very important that we understand who God is ultimately, what he did for us. And then in light of that, who we are. Um, Paul wrote to Corinthians, he said, God chooses the weak to overcome the strong, the foolish to overcome the wise, the despised, the debased, the things that are not. And if you believe in spiritual warfare, one of the things that Satan, he's the father of all lies, his native tongue is deception, John chapter 8. And if you believe in spiritual warfare, that he prowls around like a lion looking for someone to, to devour, if you believe that. And then you're trying to figure out who God is and who you are. It's something that you and I need to understand in the choosing of God. Samuel learned a lesson from God, and he even says that God doesn't judge the way men judge. He looks at the heart of a man. With the heart we believe, Romans in chapter 10. Above all else, the heart is wicked. And yet we better guard our heart because out of it the wellsprings of life flow. And so all of that together, and I know that's a lot of stuff. But I want you, the scripture says, examine yourself. First, you better examine yourself in relationship to who you understand that God is and the basis of who you are and what he did for you and why he did it and not just the why, but how he did it and how he did it. We know that for God so loved the world, John three sixteen, that he gave his only begotten son. What does that mean? If you want a description of the only begotten son, the one who is now sitting at the right hand of God, the one who descended from heaven, who subjected himself to a virgin birth, fully 100% God, uh, the Holy Spirit, fully 100% man, his mother, the Virgin Mary, uh, 100% man, 100% God. And uh, back to Ephesians 9, for a child shall be born to us, a son, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Eternal Father. But you better make sure you understand one thing. In Job's dilemma, I, I need someone who can touch God and touch me. Someone who is like me and like God. I don't know anybody like that. Let me tell you something. The Son of God was one who was like a tender shoot. That was like that piece of vegetation growing up. And you wonder, oh, what a poor, pitiful piece of vegetation. I mean, it's destined for nothing. It really has no future. That's the way he was seen. He was seen poor and pitiful, like a root out of a parched ground. He had no stately form. Nobody would just look. He's not the kind of man that you just would have looked at. He, he grew up as a minority in an impoverished part of the world in a, in a, from a race of people that had now been slaves. And he grew up in a carpenter shop. And he was born in Bethlehem. And he grew up in Galilee. And, and he was a Nazarene. And they said, well, there's nothing that good that comes from those places. Nothing at all. He wasn't this, this, I don't know, sometimes we make him to look effeminate or some. Thing that is something that may be attractive in the realm of your understanding. And the truth of the matter is, God decided, and 100% God, eternal father, prince of peace, a son that was born, the very son of God, that he would be born, and really in a place that was almost meaningless, 
historically from a powerful nation uh, perspective, in an in a enslaved people, in the poorest of communities, and there was nothing about him that you would have been. There's no appearance that should be, we'd have been attracted to him. He taught with authority. And there was somebody that people say, there's nobody that's ever taught like him. There was the teaching, and that word of God is always attractive and challenging and convicting. But make no doubt about it, God showed up in the form of a man as a man of sorrow. He was despised and forsaken of men. I'm not giving the Pharisees a pass, but you almost have to fully, if you'll just be honest with yourself, you would have looked at him and say, this man, who is he? He's from Galilee. He's a Nazarene. He, 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 this is Joseph's son. He's a carpenter's son. They didn't know who he was. How could he be the Messiah? How could he ascend to being a king? How? There's no way. And he's arrogant and he's pompous and he throws the scripture in our face. And they just thought so little of him that they plotted to destroy him and kill him. You and I probably would do the same. We really would. The same people that said, as he comes into Jerusalem, Hosanna, Hosanna, praise. They were just a very few, very short prayer saying, crucify him, crucify him. He, he wasn't somebody that had, he was despised. He was forsaken of men. He was a man of sorrows. He wept at Lazarus' tomb. I love this statement, but yet it caused me great sadness. Everybody I thought about this verse this morning as you would be here. This term, acquainted with grief. The older you get and the longer you live, um, we do become acquainted with grief. And then so much of it we just bring upon ourselves. You know, the writer of Hebrews would say that he... Even though he was he attempted, he never sinned, he didn't. Even though he was tempted in all things, he didn't he never sinned. You know what does our grief cause us to do? It can. Godly sorrow should lead to repentance. But grief can lead us to depression. It can lead us to violence. And we're well acquainted with grief. It's almost as though we're married to grief. And I don't know what you think of Jesus. And and as you examine yourself, the scripture says he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. So that's what he looked like. That's how... Humanity perceived him, and even more importantly, that's how God made him. God did not, God did not show up in the flesh as a powerfully rugged, eloquent, handsome, esteemed individual who had known nothing but blessings. Is the very exact opposite. And so that's what he looked like. That's how he was perceived in verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Now, have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a situation where you have a loving mother and father and, you know, they just seem pitiful? 
They just do. They're old and they're tired and maybe they're, you know, they're out of shape and, and you're not even fully, you just look at them and maybe you think, I wish my parents were like him or maybe I wish my parents were like him. Or you look over here and you see, and you don't fully even understand that everything that that parent is doing, Everything that they're doing is so self-sacrificial. They're just pouring themselves out for you. The sadness and the graying of the hair and the wrinkles in their eyes. And they just, and we don't even, we can't even, it's not until maybe we get a little bit older and we realize, oh my lands, everything they did for us. They were bearing our grief. They were carrying our sorrows. And we were just in rebellion to them. We couldn't even see it. Now that's just a little thing. Imagine that in our relationship with God. He knows every hidden thing that you and I have ever done. He's aware of it. He knows every unspoken and spoken misery. He knows every violent act. He knows every sinful lust. He knows everything that's broken in us. And, and we don't even really understand that. In fact, we might even, we might even despise him because of it. And what does he do? He was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastening, that whip for our well-being fell upon him. By scourging we're healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This despised human being from nowhere that we've never fully recognized this great sacrificial love that he's had for us. And yet we've even despised him. And, and yet the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Your guilt offering. And like a sheep that is silent before it sears, so he did not open his mouth. We know what he looked like. We know what he did. And we know how he spoke and didn't speak when he was on trial before Pontius Pilate, before the mockery of a trial, before the high priest. On the night that he was betrayed, he was silent. He took the role of that lamb and that guilt offering. I have nothing to say. How much do you and I have to say? How quick are we to defend ourselves? How quick are we to make an accusation about someone? How quick are we to speak? And if we're not speaking it out of our mouth, we're speaking it in this thundering voice in our mind, spirit. We might not say it because we're a coward. We might, we might not say it because of some human psychology that we've adopted that helps me justify myself by not saying it. He didn't say it because he understood in my unstately form and being despised for the people that I've sacrificially just given my life being obedient to the will of the Father, knowing the death stroke is going to come upon me, I'm just going to be a sheep. I'm just going to be a sheep. 
And my role from the day that I was born was to be sacrificed. And that's what he did. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, the death stroke. His grave was assigned with wicked men. There's prophecy here. Yet he was a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. You know what he looked like? You know what he did? And you know how he spoke. He kept his mouth shut when he needed to keep it shut. He understood that he was a lamb destined for sacrifice, and there was no deceit in his mouth. You and I cannot say that. You've never met a man that could say that. You could never met, you've never met an individual that you think you might could compare to that. Only he, only he could be silent when silence was required for the right reasons. Only he could be like a, a sheep destined for sacrifice. And only he has never uttered a deceitful word. For the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Now, if you just stop right there, Remember I said to you that every punctuation, not just every word, not just every personal pronoun, not just every prophetic word, not just every sentence, but every, every period, comma, semicolon. So you can read that first nine verses and you have a pretty good picture of the suffering servant. Yeah, that's what he looked like. That's what he did. This is the things that he said or didn't say. And then, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Semicolon. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. Everything that is a part of who you and I are is based upon that if. Everything. If you're in a residential treatment facility, um, if you own a business, if you're happily married, if you're um, suffering with a disease, if you're going through a divorce, if your family is divided, if you are facing, I heard a great statement yesterday, my grandfather uh, said it many times when I was growing up and then I heard it in a video uh, yesterday uh, the man said that his grandmother would tell him uh, if <laughs> if it wasn't a mountain uh, there'd be nothing to climb if the mountain was smooth there'd be nothing to climb now I want you to think about this I don't know what the mountain is in your life. Now, I don't know. And I don't know what they've been. But I know whatever you've gone through in your life, good or bad, 
It's based upon one word that has to do with Jesus Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of that. And it's based upon one thing, if. It's the greatest if in all the history of humanity. It's the moment in which all, all of humanity and the history and the judgment and the path and the decisions would hinge upon. You may not realize that. You may not live your life according to that. You may read the story of Jesus and you may believe he's the son of God and you may believe in forgiveness of sins and you may believe in eternal life and you may not. But let me tell you, this really doesn't depend on whether you believe it or not. I mean, it does. But the dependence, the reality, the foundation of that was based upon one thing, one moment, and it was the if moment. All of this is good. All of that is great. He looks like a man. He looks even somebody that you just wouldn't even look at. I can relate to that kind of God. That's probably the God that I need. It's the God that Job needed. I'd love the fact that, man, he would do all these things on my behalf. I've never fully weighed him. I love the fact that he, he was stricken for me. I love the fact that he was afflicted for me. I love the fact that he was pierced through for my transgressions. I love the fact that he was crushed for my iniquities. I love the fact that he was chastened for my well-being. I love all that. I love the fact that his scourging, his scourging healed me. I like all that. I like the fact that the Lord has caused all the iniquity, my iniquity to follow. I like that. The death blow was taken from me. I, I, I like that. That's good. And maybe you see it that way. Maybe you don't. I don't know. Maybe you see Jesus as some little comfortable uh, Mickey Mouse thing or a cartoon or a convenience or, 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 or a way to get something that, you know, that you think is pleasurable for you here on earth. Maybe you think that it'll give me a promotion or it'll give me a, a, a freedom from this or, or, or a full bank account or a blessing here, a blessing there, and that's all false. Every bit of it's a lie from Satan. You may encounter more trials and persecutions and mountains on the other side of Christianity long much more than you did on before Christ. If you don't believe that, just start reading. But that's okay. But whatever it is, it all hinged upon one thing, no matter which side you're on, and it's the word if. 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 Your entire being, your entire place in creation, your entire purpose in being born. Jeremiah will say that he knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb. And that only matters in eternity because of this statement. If, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he didn't have to. He didn't have to leave the throne room of heaven. He didn't have to enter into the womb of a common woman. He didn't have to suffer the indignity of a place like Galilee or Nazareth. He didn't have to suffer the indignity in the the cruelty of humanity. He didn't have to suffer uh, the walking in the great distances in the heat and the suffering and the carpenters, the building of anything that a man would do with his hand. He had been in the, the throne room of heaven. He spoke creation into being. Read about it. Genesis chapter 1. Go to Colossians chapter 1. 
You want to know? You think of God being the creator? It's right there in Colossians. It was Jesus Christ. By him and through him and for him, Jesus Christ, all things were created. And he left that? He left that to dwell among men? And if that wasn't enough, then it's right there in the garden. And he's been betrayed. And all the men that he had walked with for three years taught them. They'd seen. They'd heard. Every bit of it's coming true. Isaiah is now coming true. And the moment was in the garden where there was, Father, take this cup from me. And his sweat became like blood. And he said, however, not my will, but your will be done. That's the if. And he could have called. And the if could have taken place in any direction at any moment. It could have taken at the first stroke of the first spike. It could have taken in the place where they mocked him and they put a cover over his head and they were hitting him in the face, spitting upon him. It could have happened. And when they drove the the crown of thorns, it could have happened. It could have happened before he drew his last breath. He could have called. Oh, he could have called a legion of angels. But what did he do? He rendered himself as a guilt offering. The greatest if in all the scripture was the moment Jesus Christ took the responsibility of a guilt offering. He was the ram. He was the turtle dove. He was the pigeons. He was the blood. He was even the priest. He was the altar. He was the sin. He was the guilt. It says, Paul said in Corinthians, he became sin. You might say in your life, well, I'll do this if. Well, I'll try to do this if. Well, Hannah, I'll try to do this if, you know. Tammy, I'll do this if I can do this. Mark, well, I'll, you, you know, if I can, if. I'll do my best if. Those really don't matter, do they? I mean, we think they matter. We judge people on that, don't we? We truly do. We just do. Well, you know. So 600 years before it happened, Isaiah said, this is what it's going to look like. This is what it's going to sound like. This is what the purpose is and God's purpose. And it all depended upon one thing. If he would render himself a guilt offering. So the next time, you get a little bit overwhelmed. The next time you get to feeling a little guilty, the next time you've been mistreated, the next time somebody's done something to you that you think is not fair, the next time you feel sorry for yourself, the next time you feel angry at someone, the next time you judge someone, The next time you speak violently or angrily towards someone. The next time you despise someone. Remember that all your iniquities have been taken away. The death blow that was due you and I was taken by someone else who answered the call of if. Can you imagine what that moment must have been like? 
Son, you spoke all this into being. We know every soul that's ever going to be born before it's formed in its mother's womb. Every one of them is going to go astray. Just read Romans chapter 3. Not one of them is going to do good. Not one. Genesis 6, God was so sorry he made man that he said he was sorry that he made man because evil was continually in his heart. And just imagine a conversation between God the Father and the Holy Spirit in heaven on the day of creation and then when Adam and Eve sinned willfully and a plan was already in place. Son, you have to render yourself as a guilt offering. You have to become less than common. You've got to suffer evil at the hands of evil men. You've got to become sin. Would you do it? But even more important, because none of us would, but even more important, have you examined yourself in light of that? Have you taken the ifs in your life and tried to compare them to that moment in the life of Jesus and waited and said, oh my, oh my, my very breath, my life, my sufferings, my blessings, the promise of an eternal life and the forgiveness of sins is because the Son of God rendered himself as a guilt offering. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Our desire this morning is that we have offered a worship service that is pleasing to you. That is somehow, in some way, uh, we, uh, we have tried to learn and understand the role of your son. And as we sing, all my hope is in Jesus. Father, I hope that we fully always understand that, that all of my hope is in Jesus. Because he would, in fact, render himself as a guilt offering. And like a lamb led to slaughter, he remained silent. We give you praise and honor for that, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray.